Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. David Waltreiser to discuss his new book, The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, A Poet's Journeys Through American Slavery and Independence, published by Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux in 2023. At 19 years old, Phyllis Wheatley published the first book in English by a person of African descent and the third book of poetry by a North American woman. She was a poet, but also a political actor and celebrity, the most famous African in North America and Europe during the era of the American Revolution. George Washington wrote to her, Thomas Jefferson ridiculed her. In his new book, A Joint Exercise in History and Literary Criticism, Dr. David Walstreicher writes that Wheatley is, quote, Homer and Odysseus and the slaves, and the women they knew or imagined. She aimed for the universal without forgetting who was suffering most and why, close quote. Reading Whitley's poetry and historical context reveals the extent to which the American Revolution both strengthened and limited black slavery, and also how Wheatley herself affected the debates about American slavery and independence. Mastering the Bible, Greek and Latin translations, and the works of Pope and Milton, Whitley composed elegies for local elites, celebrated political events, and praised warriors. Despite her skill, knowledge, and fame, she often had to write indirectly about subjects that mattered deeply to her, race, slavery, and discontent with British rule. During a period in which writing was central to political conversation, she used her verse to lampoon, question, and assert the injustice of her enslaved condition. As Walshreicher demonstrates, Wheatley wrote about events and people, turning what was available and acceptable to a person in her position into poetry that could be read for its art, but also subversively for its political ideas. 
Walsh Reicher concludes that her work proves that the story of the American Revolution and Phyllis Wheatley are inextricably joined. And that story is one of, quote, resilience and creativity, of anti-slavery and anti-racist possibilities, and of backlash and loss, dreams dashed and deferred, close quote. Dr. David Walshreicher is Distinguished Professor of History, American Studies, and Africana Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. His research interests include U.S. cultural and political history, colonial and early U.S., African American history, slavery, and anti-slavery. He is the author of Slavery's Constitution, From Revolution to Ratification, from Hill and Wang, and Runaway American, Benjamin Franklin, Slavery, and the American Revolution from Farrah Strauss and Giroux. His public-facing writing includes contributions to the New York Times Book Review, the Boston Review, and the Atlantic. I am delighted to welcome him to the New Books Network. David, I told my partner that this was one of the best books I've ever read, but it would be a really hard podcast because the book is such a unique combination of politics, history, and literature. It has a very clear argument, but what makes it special to me is how the chapters unfold very dramatically and how you combine Wheatley's poetry with your own prose. And I know like, I'm not sure there is an extra word in the book which I cannot say about any of the other books that I've done on new books, even though they're terrific. And it's almost as if you're writing about this amazing poet and your own prose is communicating, you know, your passion. I mean, the book reads a lot like a, like a great novel, even though it's a work of American history. So I I really want to thank you for, for this book. And I think that it really helps uh, also in the context of these contemporary fights about American education, because I think you're, you're very carefully showing how American history doesn't make sense, including many of the characters we're familiar with, without thinking about um, their interactions with Phyllis Wheatley and what she was doing with, uh, with them. I said before the podcast that I talked to a lot of really smart people, a lot of education, but not all of them know who Phyllis Wheatley was. Um, and as I also mentioned to you, my daughter knew who she was from Liberty's Kids, and that's 20 years ago that she was watching that show. But she's just back from Senegal, and she wasn't aware of the connection to West Africa that you make so clear in the book. Um, So let's just start with a a little background on Wheatley before we talk about the heart of her book, which is is not just a a simple biography, but a very, very complicated unfolding um, connecting of her poetry to um, contemporary events. So can you give us a short version of, of who she is for people who may not remember or have never known who she was? Sure. In 1761, the girl who became known as Phyllis Wheatley uh, was uh, an enslaved person uh, on a ship, probably coming from West Africa, Senegambia, to Boston. She was bought by the Wheatleys, who uh, were uh, a merchant. Uh, John Wheatley was a merchant. Susanna Wheatley was a a well-educated, evangelical, uh, reforming 
a woman um, very involved in, uh, from what we can tell, in various uh, activities that involved converting natives and um, uh, charity. And uh, they uh, had recently lost um, a child, um, and they were getting older. They had they had two twin older children who were in their late teens, and um, Phyllis was to be kind of a a domestic worker and a, a substitute for the for the younger children, as it were. And at some point, um, we, we, all we know is comes from lore handed down by the Wheatley family. At some point, she uh, convinces them to teach her uh, members of the family to teach her how to read. And within a few years, she is writing occasional poetry and pious verses that are extremely impressive, and that start to get circulated and start to uh, draw attention in Boston and uh, elsewhere in New England. By in 1767, she published or they published her first poem in a newspaper. It's a poem about a, about merchants who were visiting a near shipwreck and merchant merchants who were visiting the Wheatley's home. And very quickly, she's writing about uh, she's writing about neighbors who died. She's writing about famous ministers who are sick or who pass away. She's writing about political events like the anniversary of the repeal of the, the repeal of the Stamp Act. And she's starting to become famous all over town. And um, she's a teenager. She's young. She's a prodigy. By the time we get to 1770 and she publishes this elegy for the uh, on the death of George Whitfield, who was this uh, evangelical Methodist preacher who was the who really spearheaded what became what eventually in the 20th century became known as a, as the Great Awakening um, and who visited the colonies six or seven times before he died in, in suddenly on his last trip in 1770 uh, she writes a, a poem about him that uh, is published in England as well as uh, all over New England and is acknowledged to be the best of the many verses about about Whitfield and she's uh, famous in a way that um, poets aspire to be, but no Africans had ever been. Um, and uh, she's 16 years old. She's 16, 17 years old. And so um, this, this sets her on a, a course of doing more and more ambitious writing for wider and wider audiences. She goes to London in 1773 to get her poems published. And the question of who she is and what her, what is she, what she's doing gets mixed up in the increasing questioning of slavery and its relationship to um, American Whig or Patriot calls for liberty. And she's quite aware of that. And as a result, she becomes an actor in the transatlantic controversy, the imperial controversy, and the controversy over slavery, which by 1772, 73, we can actually call, if we can't call it a movement, we can certainly call it a controversy. So, um, who was her audience? Uh, you say that it's it's across the ocean, right? People are reading her in Boston newspapers, uh, but they're also reading her in London. You know, in terms of gender, class, race, where who, who is able to read them? Are the poems ever read out loud for people who are not literate? Do we do we know have have some information about that? Well, we know her poems were passed around in manuscript by the late 1760s among these um, networks of pious women, uh, not just evangelical uh, 
Methodists, also Quakers in Philadelphia, who also had some of their own writing circles, and they're writing poetry, and they have connections outside of town. And some of her poems show up in manuscript. She she sent several of them, and they're they're here in the archives in here in Philadelphia. So we know that they're circulating in manuscript as well as in print. We also know that Boston is a remarkably literate population, as well as a small walking city. So people would have uh, read her poems in the newspaper and in broadsides, uh, but they also uh, would have heard her perform them in the Wheatley's parlor. She was invited into people's houses. She composes occasional poems that suggest there are more of them that we don't know about that never didn't survive because some of her poems only survive in manuscript others survive only in print and there's no manuscript some of them make it into her book others that we know she wrote did don't end up in her book so we have about we have 58 poems she probably she i'm sure she wrote more than 100 and, and probably twice that so uh it's it's not just it, it's not just an elite audience and uh, it's really um, the most important fact here is that poems were popular culture in this period. They're political, they're religious. They're not always both those things, but they can be both or neither. There are um, popular ballads and there are elite forms like the Miltonic blank verse, which was very, which was high end, which I talk about what it meant for her to aspire to and uh, experiment with some of those uh, forms that people wouldn't have really uh, understood unless they had read Milton, which was filled with classical and biblical allusions, but also in its own time, an attempt to do something ambitious and popular and, and still was considered something that any educated person should should know know very well. And had a real influence on people like James Madigen, Madison, who who read some of the political messages in the poetry and, and brought them into the debate about uh, what the you know new new nations should look like. You you mentioned the archives, and I want to ask you a little bit about how you write a book like this. Um, you you talk in the book a couple of times about clues in in plain sight, and you say that you know she didn't just and these are your words. She didn't just you know choose words with special care in the poems, but she said you say that. Um, there are clues hiding in plain sight, as poets do, but also faint footprints in the recorded lives of others. Now, we don't have as much about Phyllis Wheatley in her own words, besides this remarkable body of poetry. So, you know, how is it that you uh, wrote the book? What, what had been written about Wheatley that you're using? Were there sources that you returned to with different eyes? Were there new sources? Were there new poems to look at? Um Give us a little idea about, about the craft here. Literary critics have been increasingly willing to read Wheatley closely and in context and see the possibly subversive moments in her work and the self-consciousness about what it, what it means to be a woman writing and to be an African writing in English and an enslaved person. So, so I got a lot of help and, um, uh, I'm, I'm relying on some very good scholarship. Historians, some historians in the sixties and seventies started to pick up on the revolutionary moment as a context for Wheatley 
but um, uh, it was really it, nobody took it too far, uh, uh, and certainly not, not to think that they could create a book length narrative out of it. I felt that I had something to contribute here because I'm a historian of both the revolution and of slavery and anti-slavery and political culture. And I'm an American studies PhD. I've, I've, uh, I was an English major as well as a history major in college. So I've, I've always had an interest in poetry. So I, I gradually became more ambitious with this project, but it was very hard to imagine it as a, a full biography and a narrative. Um, uh, even though I became gradually convinced that there hadn't been as much attention paid to her when to the timing of her poems. They hadn't been seen that everyone was reading her for, okay, what's Phyllis Wheatley's attitude towards slavery? What's Phyllis Wheatley's attitude toward religion as if, and, and her life was short. So people thought, okay, well, she becomes more, more mature as a writer, but she's not really a, how much could she have evolved in that time? So you just look at all her poems and you pick a few to talk about and you make an argument about what she's really about or what she's doing in one poem or another. But there wasn't as much, much of a sense that, well, there's a reason why this poem in 1766 is published here or why, or what, and what else is, what's going on in Boston? What are other poets doing? Uh, who is she talking to? Why, who are these people she's talking about? These dead, these dead people or these living people. Uh, and uh, it's one thing if it's somebody famous, if it's George Washington, but um, well, who are these other people who refer to her and who she interacts with? So I, I started to do more and more of that kind of work. And that's what I mean by footprints, like kind of um, seeing how people respond to her as evidence for what she's doing in in ways that are both uh, indirect direct and indirect. But it really came together as a narrative when I started to read the Boston newspapers, and there were four or five of them at different times of different political valences and persuasions. And I became convinced that she was also reading the newspapers or read, reading everything else and listening to everything, so it was just as good as reading the, reading the newspapers uh some of which came out several times a week and that she's really responding to events. And, and as we sometimes say, discourses, rhetorics, ways people are talking about different things, comparisons, metaphors. So when she uses, when she says, says something like um, refers to the Americans as our modern Egyptians, she's quite aware of the valences that that has, or when she refers to, uh, like some people say I'm a barbarian. She knows very well that both the, the Tories and the and the Patriots are throwing this term uh, at each other. Who's who's being civilized and who's fighting this imperial fight uh, or eventually war in a barbaric way in a context where they also think that there are civilizations or races that are more barbaric than others, including Africans. So she's so so when she starts to play with these things, she knows quite well that she's making a political intervention. Um, and that people are going to notice exact, understand exactly what she's doing, even if it's metaphoric. So uh, that the um, and also the newspapers helped me bring out aspects of context that I, that hadn't been much developed by other scholars, um, including what's going on with other Africans in Boston. That's the, that's the and and um, as well as the kind of day to day of the um, the uh, 
the, the coming of the revolution in Boston, which I knew more about and other scholars of mind similar sources to figure out, but I, I was able to revisit all of that with a sense that, um, that language matters and that, um, uh, even though, um, everybody agrees that Bernard Balin was right, that, um, things like pamphlets and um, political arguments were popular and that they weren't all logical, that there was a kind of uh, ideological and metaphorical uh, dimension to the battle over Amer um, British and eventually American liberties. Uh, there hasn't always been a realization that this stuff took place in the streets and in the newspapers and in a dialectic that went back and forth from the streets and the newspapers. And that had been a theme that I had worked with in, or that I've been working with in all of my work in, in, in my previous three books. So that was, I really, in, in, when in retrospect, I think this book took me longer because I, I didn't want to methodologically, I didn't want to say, Oh, uh, this is my method. I, 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 I take off from the newspapers. I thought, Oh, I'm, no, I'm doing, I'm doing black history here. And you know, I'm doing, I'm doing a poet. I can't do things the same way. So I actually waited years before I went back to the newspaper. But then when I did, and I'd done all this other research, it, it's just started to all fall into place in a, in a, in a thematic and chronological way. So there's a couple of things uh, that you've said that are really intriguing. First of all, you're, you know, you're taking things that other people have looked at. Uh, and, and I'll just say for those who haven't yet read the book, there are letters that are being written to other people, but about Phyllis Wheatley that you're mining. There's letters that she's writing to people and she's writing to two sets of people. Uh, you underlined in your comment just now that you know, she's not the only person making some of these arguments in Boston at this time, she has a cohort of people that are, are in a sense, a character in, in your book, that they they are constantly talking to her. She is talking to them both, uh, you know, uh, privately and publicly. So she's exceptional, and much as we'll talk later is made of her exceptionalness. But you underline that though you obviously think she's exceptional, she's not the only exceptional person there making some of these arguments. And she feels that. She feels like she's part of a cohort. And I think the other thing I wanted to say about newspapers is it's funny because we fetishize certain newspaper exchanges, like the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. And in, in the case of the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, we have this, uh, you know, attention to them. We read them as a book. We treat them as if they were kind of a philosophical endeavor, which they absolutely were not. They were like op-eds and they were op-eds in, in a newspaper. So I think it's fascinating that you come back to those newspapers and and find so much there. Um, and I one of the things I think you do really well in this book is that, you know, you say that some of these poets that you've mentioned, like John Milton or Alexander Pope, you know, they would include, they, they would include a preface that would tell people what they were doing. And, and part of what she's doing is not telling people exactly what she's doing. So she's not going to make that statement. So you, in a sense, this book, in a sense, gives her, as you put it, her due as a politically aware person, somebody who intends the poetry to have layers of meaning. So she's not just e expressing feelings about slavery, but she's contributing to this ongoing conversation that you say is this is how this is the, the this is as popular as anything we can imagine the newspapers and this kind of writing and poetry. Um, 
even if today that's not always our Armenian. And she's she's trying to swing this in a different direction. You you call her in the book the organic intellectual of the enslaved, which I thought was a, a beautiful way to put it. But again, you are always saying she's not the only one, but she's my my focus. Um, you mentioned language, and I, I do want to call attention to something that you do at the very start of the book. Um, many of us who who read in this genre know that scholars of African American history and culture, literature, often begin with a note on their language choices. And and you note that that Phyllis Wheatley referred to herself and others as African with a capital A, and sometimes sable to refer to skin tone. And, and you have very strong feelings about why she might have done that and why you use her approach in the book. And I was just wondering if you would share, you know, the kind of choices that you made here uh, for the language of the book. Yes, the, 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 uh, the real issue here is that while I was writing this book, uh, it became standard practice in newspapers, magazines, and um, trade books to capitalize, black, to use black and to capitalize it. And that, that is the default whether talking about someone from hundreds of years ago or 50 years ago or in the present. And I, folks started to ask me why I wasn't doing that. And so I had to think about it and my, and, and um, it's a, it's an issue for publishers now because some, some people, folks find it offensive if you don't do it. And some folks wonder why you do do it if you're trying to make us make a statement. Uh, I, uh, as a historian, I think that uh, I, I do worry, and this is not even specific to the, um, not necessarily just in the case of of, of African Americans and their uh, and their descendants. Um, there's a problem sometimes when we're so sensitive to language that we obscure the sensitivity to language of people in the past where they made different choices in order to make a political argument or to express who they thought they were. And so there's been a name that Sterling Stuckey used to call it the names controversy in African America. It goes back 200 years. And I was uh, in the early Republic. Um, Africans started to call themselves African, whether they'd been born in Africa or not. That was their solidarity. move. That was their political move. And they did it. I, I and others have argued specifically to say, no, we are not a race, we are a nation. Doesn't matter exactly what color we are. What matters is that we are, you know, basically uh, an, an, a, a, a diaspora, right? And thus, and as a, uh, a diaspora, we're an oppressed minority, but we, we either deserve to have our own country or we deserve the rights that everyone else has. Um, if they have any rights at all in this country. And, um, and, and also I think, I think it was an, it was an answer to rising racism in the late 18th century. Uh, people starting to justify slavery by saying Africans are different and you can see that they're different. And, uh, that's why they're enslaved as opposed to, uh, they're, they're enslaved because this was, um, this was an industry 
that came into being over a long period of time that served some African and some European interests and that then became racialized because they stopped because everyone forgot that they were also enslaving natives and that there were other there had been there had been slaves all over the world and suddenly it's just the Africans. Oh well why is that? Oh it must be because they sell each other or because it's okay because they're different. In, in, they're heathen or they're different. So that, that that's the, the shorthand for like what happened in the 17th, 18th centuries. So slavery is becoming racialized, both obviously and in terms of the excuses for it. So Africans respond by saying, uh, "No, uh, we are just another nation, and we're look, we're we're uniquely oppressed." But all that, if, if we say, "Oh, if we say black all the time," it's like we're we're after the fact racializing all of them and and emphasizing. It sounds like so. I, and I don't think that when folks use black now, I think they're using it in a nationalist sense. And it's been that way for decades. But there, but it's it obscures the, the choice that Wheatley's generation was making for the same kind of reasons. Uh, it obscures their version of that black nationalism, which but I think the most important thing for Wheatley was that it was it was actually a universalizing version of black nationalism. Where and where it didn't mean that uh, I'm African and thus I can't be American or British. She makes it very clear by the time we get to she gets to 1774, 75 that she that she's she's all three and she insists on being all three. So that's another reason why I think um, I think that the, the there's a sometimes a presumption that when somebody emphasizes their blackness, that means they're saying that's their only or primary identity. And I just want to, I don't want to so much, I don't want to say that it's wrong for anybody to say that about themselves or their experience, just so much to say that that's not what she was doing. And uh, for, for, for reasons that were just as political as they were personal. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off no and i think you capture that very very well then throughout the book that this is this is a political statement that she's making and and part of the book is trying to think very very carefully about the indirect and direct messages that she's putting into the poetry and the and 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 the limited ability that she has and therefore we have to be very very careful about each and every word which i think you are in the book and i i thought that the the opening was great because i think all authors are now uh dealing with this either uh, explicitly or uh, you know, behind the scenes. And I think putting it out front is great for everybody who's reading and everybody who's writing to to think about this balancing act about respect. What does it mean to have respect in the time that you're in and to carve out that respect with the terms that you self-refer with, as opposed to how those terms can then sound and um, 
and feel in a completely different century. Um, we're talking about words and we're talking about poetry, and I don't think most people have actually heard any of Phyllis Wheatley's poetry. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to to read something of hers, because I, I think that one thing I came to understand in this book was that you know she, I, I thought I knew something about Phyllis Wheatley. I, I, the, the book definitely told me I, I needed to know more, but I don't think I had a sense of just... Uh, the, the full style of her poetry, because I think I've just heard one or two lines pulled in, you know, in a, in a particular context to serve a different, a different purpose maybe than her own. So if, if you wouldn't mind, that would be just terrific. If you could read a little bit of her poetry. I'd love to. And, and because this is a, this is a uh, new books on politics uh, podcast, it gives me an excuse to, uh, read a poem that was transformative in her experience and is, is one of her most directly political poems. Uh, it's to the right honorable William Earl of Dartmouth, his majesty's principal secretary of state for North America, etc. cetera. Uh, why that long title? Why write a poem to the Earl of Dartmouth, secretary of state for North America in Boston? Well, uh, Earl of Dartmouth had been under secretary of state for the colonies for the, for the, what they called the Southern Department, which was actually the Caribbean and North America. Um, and he has just taken that position again to the great relief of the patriots who think he's going to be more sympathetic. This is in 1772 than the previous holder of that office. He's also known as a pious Methodist. So Benjamin Franklin, the New Englanders are saying, oh, we got Dartmouth back. Everything's going to be okay. Things are going to be better. The amazing thing is that Phyllis, she's all over this. And there's this guy in Boston who's traveling who uh, is, a, is from the same uh, town as Dartmouth and who is a, a colonial office holder in Florida. And he's, he's having issues with his superiors and he's traveling in North America with his, with his wife. And he, um, he hears about Phyllis Wheatley or so he says, and he goes to visit her and he says, uh, write me a poem, like show me that you are who you are. He's going to get a poem out of her to show off to Lord Dartmouth and send it to Dartmouth. Cause he knows that, that Dartmouth will be interested or so he says, um, probably actually the connection is through his, through his wife, whose name is also Susanna and who she eventually writes a poem, a poem to. So she says, come back tomorrow. And when she, when he comes back, she has this long poem to the writer, honorable Earl Dartmouth. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read the first, uh, half of it or so. And then I'll, I'll, I'll talk briefly about it or you can, or we can talk about it. Hail happy day when smiling like the morn, fair freedom rose New England to adorn. The northern clime beneath her genial, genial ray, Dartmouth congratulates thy blissful sway. Elate with hope, her race no longer mourns. Each soul expands, each grateful bosom burns. While in thine hand with pleasure we behold the silken reins and freedom's charms unfold. Long lost to realms beneath the northern skies, she shines supreme while hated faction dies. So soon, soon as appeared the goddess long desired, sick at the view, she languished and expired. Thus from the splendors of the morning light, the owl in sadness seeks the caves of night. 
No more America in mournful strain of wrongs and grievance unredressed complain. No longer shalt thou dread the iron chain which wanton tyranny with lawless hand had made and with it meant to enslave the land. Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good by feeling hearts alone best understood? I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest? What sorrows labor in my parents' breast? Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case. And can I then but pray others may never feel tyrannic sway? So she's moving from... New England getting saved by this British officer functionary, the government, from its possible enslavement, its loss of freedom, these new silken chains, which are basically a better administration, right? Silken reigns, right? Instead of an iron chain. So then she pivots and says, well, well, um, okay, we won't be, we won't be subject to tyranny anymore. And then she starts talking about herself. Well, wonder, are you wondering why, why, why do I get to talk about this? Who am I to talk about this? Well, I'm exactly, I know all about slavery. I'm exactly the person who can understand why nobody should have to be under tyrannic sway. It's her most autobiographical moment uh, or uh, most extended one in her poems. Um, and she's basically saying, if you think that um, the British policy was wrong, let me tell you, slavery, African slavery is worse and she's being quite direct about it and she's putting herself forward as an expert on politics as well as on the condition of of africans and the and the uh illegitimacy the moral illegitimacy of slavery and she's writing this poem and she is still formally owned is that correct this is before her emancipation how is it that um, the Wheatleys have, um, how can I put it? Uh, it's not endorsed. They're really not in any way suggesting what she should or shouldn't write, but they are publicizing it. And a lot of times in the book, I really had the sense for their own betterment. Uh, can you explain a little bit about why the Wheatleys, why it was in their interest uh, to allow the publications to sometimes assist the publications or sometimes was Phyllis Wheatley doing things that in fact they didn't want done, but she was able to operate independently. The, the evidence we have points to a, a very canny publication strategy that at least that, that Susanna Wheatley is very much engaged in, that it's a collaborative effort. And it's been, it's been, it's tricky. It's tricky. There are different interpretations of what, what, why are they doing this? What are they getting out of it? The more subversive we see Phyllis Wheatley, the harder it is to imagine that her oppressor, her owner, uh, is completely on board or supportive. And so I, I, um, I don't have a definitive answer. I think it evolves. I think she makes herself so. They're so proud of her 
and of her their role in uplifting her. And she's such a symbol of the way that slavery may be actually not only reformed, but actually an engine of their own salvation and perhaps the salvation of New England of of New Englanders and of eventually of Africa because some of their associates are talking about sending missionaries and even even maybe Phyllis eventually over to Africa to con- to convert in the, in the, the indigenous Africans that uh, I think the the problem we have imagining it is that we don't really uh, understand we don't it's hard for us to imagine that people that people either thought slavery was wrong or they thought it was right we we look at it through this 19th century pro-slavery versus abolitionist debate and not they're seeing it as one among a range of things that can be moral or immoral depending on the circumstances and if you treat your slaves well and you convert them and maybe that you free them or their children maybe it's better than maybe it's better than your parents version of it or maybe it's better than um uh, it is next door. So, and that can become a way to, for people to have it both ways. And I think the Wheatley's had it both ways. I think the, 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 I think the, the most, the most revealing thing is the way that they both talked about her, like the way she, like she was a member of the family and then also not. That tells us a lot about what slavery was becoming in their household and maybe in places like Boston, uh, in domestic spaces. So like it, it's it's kind of a um, and this is a society where they used to ass- they assigned young or they assigned orphans people who didn't have parents would get assigned to a household where they would be they were supposed to be brought up and taken care of and the town could intervene the town could say I'm gonna we're gonna switch you over to somebody else's house like like your your grandmother's not taking care of you we're gonna assign you uh, you're not you're not laboring there you're not being productive somebody else needs a a 14 year old girl uh, we're gonna assign you to that household if we think that they're gonna do a better job so uh, in that context um, there are these intermediate there are these people who are of family but not family members and it's a continuum a really a continuum of of unfreedom and part of the job of the patriarch and the matriarch and the minister is to make sure those people are um taken care of and saved if possible too that uh this is What's different about the Wheatleys is that they're taking that logic to an extreme uh, and with a particular kind of evangelical project. And also, I think I think there's evidence. It's pretty clear that Susanna becomes emotionally dependent on Phyllis Wheatley. So I came to think of her and thinking about what she's doing in her poetry and how she's reaching out and making making kin, making friends, um, that she is uh, a she's a very emotionally responsive person who makes people like her and need her. And that, um, that is part of how she put herself in a position to become famous and to become free. And I'm very uncomfortable with seeing that as either ordinary or extraordinary, but I think it's kind of both in how she does it. Well, I'm sure that in all households, there was this sort of exchange between the enslaved uh, in the ways that they 
made their uh, enslavers to feel uh, their need to 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 emotionally manipulate them. In her case, there's a financial element to it that's not present in most families because this book she she's she makes money for the family as well as brings a kind of a fame and uh, attention to them. She makes them kind of they're you know they're mercantilists they're 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 not that exciting, but they're also not ordinary people. They're kind of in the middle, and all of a sudden, her celebrity gives them a certain different kind of exceptionalness in in Boston society. You uh, you alluded to this in your comment, and I, I definitely want to draw you out just a little bit on this about how her genius was used to make an argument against slavery, uh, of how being such a genius could be compatible with slave status. And I, I just like you to say a couple of sentences more about, about how that functioned, like just, just her, her ability in creating this, her ability creates this argument against slavery. Well, there's, it's long been understood that she was kind of a one woman anti-slavery argument because she was used that way long after she died. Uh, especially with the rise of these racist pro-slavery arguments that said, well, there we enslaved them because they are different, inferior, not Christian, not like us. If she could assimilate and be such an expert participant and contributor to contemporary culture, if she could be uh, not only Christian, but basically preaching in her poetry, converting, inspiring others. Uh, if she's this good, if she's a genius, not only does she not, does she not deserve to be a slave, but maybe that means that any, that, that maybe that means that, that, that Africans are equal. So who is she? Is she, is she a freak or is she a sign that the future is a kind of uh, equality if we treat them better if we all are do as well as the wheatleys did then um things are going to be very different for africans in the future and the the um the fact that uh these kinds of arguments the fact that africans are assimilating and that they are they are they are equally capable and they're doing they're no longer just off the boat um put into menial jobs, but they're actually um, English, American, Yankee. Um, the backlash to that is to, is, to, uh, is to reach for these politicized racial arguments, and that's what's happening already in the 1770s, and that's what she's fighting against. So there's a, um, and she's, quite, and she's quite, uh, quite aware of that. And... Um, It intensifies when she goes over to England, and people are already using the fact that there are there is all or there is so much slavery, and slavery is so important in North America. People in England who are critical of the hypocrisy of the Patriot movement are using Patriot dependence on slaves, the existence of American slavery. After all, the presence of Africans and Native Americans and how they're treated is one of the things that makes the colonies different than England. And so it's a potential buttress for arguments that no, 
not necessarily that if you're a colonist, it doesn't mean you have all the same rights. It doesn't mean you get to completely control taxes or laws and stuff, you know, because you have the right to go over there and make money off of Africans. But you but this has to be controlled by a central government. And that, that but the Americans are arguing against that. And uh, the fact of slavery is a um, increasingly recurrent uh, argument that's being used against them. And uh, she goes over to London and, and some people can't resist saying um, that, uh, can, you, can you believe, like, she, even if she's not that great a poet, can you believe she's still a slave? What does that say about these Americans? So the Wheatleys are embarrassed. And that's probably why she becomes free out of that event of going over to London for six weeks, as well as having her book published, which has never happened before. So like, you know, just the idea, like, can you even own property? Can you even own your book if you're an enslaved person? I mean, it raises actual legal uh, issues that nobody wants to have to to have to deal with. And it's a, it's a, so, ter- it's a sorry, interrupted. It's a terrific moment in the book when you talk about her emancipation, because you lay out several possible ways that it came about, which really allows us to see the nuance of what was available in the moment. I mean, she could have disappeared. And if she disappeared and didn't go back, she might have won her freedom that way. You lay out all of these possible options as to as to who suggested what, when, and whether the fact that she did return, in a sense, made the case for her to, 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 to be emancipated. Um, and I, and I want to underline that this is a book that really needs to be read because of the way these small things uh, unfold in the book. Small characters become bigger characters. Small events like a lawsuit become tied to the kinds of arguments that she can make of what she's observing over time that we just can't possibly capture here. But I want to ask you a question about masks and code switching, because you've sort of alluded to it a couple of times, uh, and how the family regarded her and this idea that, you know, is she like the daughter or uh, is she not when it comes, for example, to the uh, um, giving of property um, upon death, then she is no longer seems to be the treasured member of the family. But uh, you, you cite this letter that um, I think it's Margarita Odell, is it Margaret or Margarita, uh, stresses how much her aunt, who's Susanna Wheatley, uh, who, who's the one who bought and, uh, and sponsored and, and enslaved Phyllis along the way, appreciated Phyllis's talent. She, you quote from the letter, quote that, you know, that Aunt Susanna, quote, gave Phyllis full scope for her genius. Uh, but that she also writes that Susanna, quote, never indulged her muse in any fits of sullenness or caprice. She was at all times accessible. Uh, and, and you make a lot of this last few words about what would it mean to be at all times accessible? Uh, and, and, and you don't use the word code switching, but it really does seem that she does a lot of mask wearing for a lot of people that when she speaks very, very directly in her letters to uh, another African-American person, she, she writes in a very, very different way than when she's writing to one of her white enslavers or later, um, even when she's um, emancipated. So can you talk just a little bit about sure. this idea? Yeah, it's been... In the last couple of years, it's been delightful to see um, black poets and playwrights picking up on this 
this dimension that you can see if you read the poems and you read and you know you read uh, you read some scholarship and then you read her letters and you can see her saying different things to different people all of a sudden the possibilities of dramatizing how she how she would have actually talked to different people and how how much her experience depends on um, on code switching on and with on um, being very careful with language and that that is that and then then when you realize that she's actually doing that in order to survive and in order to to, to live then it's obvious she must be doing it in the in her writing and just the just that and that her writing is part of that of of a, of a life strategy and that is what i um what i'm trying to capture without going without but i'm not a poet or a playwright i can't imagine scenes right so i'm trying to use what we have to suggest the meaning of the scenes that I can reconstruct and plot them along the lines of her poems as, as actions, as personal actions and as political actions, as well as interpretations of whatever it is, whoever and whatever she happens to be writing about uh, at, that, at that moment. And I, well, at one of the challenges of it was realizing at a certain moment that for all the, for all the presumptions that have been um, projected onto Phyllis Wheatley out of the mere evidence of the memoir of Margareta O'Dell written 70 years after the fact. Now, she's a Boston abolitionist, but she's also a member of the Wheatley family. And the fact of the matter is the most famous thing that ever happened to any of the Wheatleys was Phyllis. We have more from Phyllis Wheatley's pen than we have from any of the other Wheatleys combined. And even though it isn't much, we know so little about I mean, they were they were rich. They were a big deal. People knew who they were in Boston in their lifetimes. But by the time Phyllis is becoming famous, John and Susanna Wheatley are aging. They're old. They're in their 60s, which is old. I mean, even though Boston, even though like people are living longer in Boston than anywhere else in the Western world, for whatever reason, we don't completely know. But that's still, it's still for the 18th century. They're old and, and, and vulnerable. And um, they are becoming there emotionally from what I am able to tease out. I think there's very good reason to think not only are John and like, so like, so what's going on with John and Susanna, not only are they ambivalent and not sure how to think about their future and what, and um, at a very, at a very uncertain time in Boston and how to think about Phyllis in relation to that, their kids are dealing with the fact that there is this other daughter who they all really, I think they all liked, maybe even loved her, but didn't know what to do about their own, their jealousy. Nathaniel goes over with her to London and he's, he's like inheriting the family business and marrying the daughter of the partner and according the daughter of, of one of the Wheatley's partners in London. This is a big moment for him. And like, as far as everybody else is concerned, like she's going around meeting all these famous people and Benjamin Franklin comes and like ignores him. He comes and visits her and, and ignores him. And like, like he, he doesn't go back with her. He stays there for a year and a half and gets married. He, so he's acting out. He's like, he doesn't know. I mean, but all the other evidence suggests that he is on board with the, with the larger project. He doesn't, he's not like so resentful that he's screwing her over, but he is like, uh, I, like, so this is what she has to deal with. Mary Wheatley, like, 
marries this major minister. But when she does it, she's she's pretty old for a New England woman when she does that. And we know I have we have, don't have a single letter from Mar- from Mar- from Mary Wheatley, and she dies. Um, she has several children, and then she dies during the war. Uh, but she has a falling out with Susanna Wheatley that there's that I found evidence of. Um, that must have gotten in the way of this family dynamic and maybe contributed to the fact to Phyllis not really knowing what her place was going to be. So that that there she's dealing with, she's looking for it's, it's uh, at the, at the most public or uh, basic level, she has to look for patronage all the way through. Can't just rely on the Wheatleys forever. Right. She can see the writing on the wall. One of the points I make again and again is that even enslaved people who have a relatively good situation, their masters die, their, their owners die, they get sold. They get, they get sold. They can't, they can't keep a family together. They can't depend on, even if they have, even if they have family in the same household, that's not going to last. Families split up, the estates get, get um, divided. And uh, so she's looking for kin, she's looking for patronage, but she's also trying to figure out what to do and what, what, what she's going to do in this, in this emotionally, as well as financially and practically complicated. And, and, and uh, historians for a long time just like tried to reduce this to say, oh, the problem was the Wheatleys were Tories. Look, they sent her over to England. Look, um, Nathaniel uh, signed this one, uh, uh, he didn't, he cheated on the non-importation resolves so he must have been a Tory, and that explains why uh, she she would have she was she would have uh, remained a Tory, but um, she took chose the wrong side. She ends up with the Patriots, and she uh, and then things go wrong. So she's a victim of the American Revolution. Well, maybe, but it's not that simple. Nobody knows what's happening next. She she's trying to have it both ways politically, in terms of keeping her lines of communication open, and she's and with different ministers and different churches and within the family. So she's um, a very she's ha- she's dealing with a lot of complicated facts, but but all those things are also the ground of her art and her rise. So we can't just like we can't just telescope it into a tragic inevitable fall or or uh, a story of uh, a victimization because she is um, she um, played her cards extremely well. Now, and what you say uh, just now and throughout the book is that she has a strategy of protecting herself. She's reaching out to all sorts of people so that no matter how the American Revolution comes out, no matter how the family's fortunes come out, there are other people who are there. There's a moment in the narrative in which she has to prove that she wrote these poems and she needs these 17 men whom she's cultivated all along the way, and the Wheatleys have helped her cultivate, who can vouch for her. Um, and But I wanted to ask you about one other element of protecting yourself, you know, in the late 18th century, uh, and it has to do uh, in the late 18th century, and it, and it has to do with, uh, with sexuality. I mean, you note that she often in the poetry presents herself as without desire, uh, one can understand, maybe given the stereotypes of the time of Black women as hypersexual and also the extent to which owning a person was uh, assumed to mean that you could have sexual ac- access and that you could also reproduce, 
that it, it's necessary for her to be extremely careful in the poetry not to suggest and to fall into any of the stereotyping that is surrounding her. But it, it also made me think a lot about the dangers that especially an enslaved child might have um, encountered in a household in which she grew into a woman in terms of sexual exploitation and assault. Do, do we have any any information about that? Do we have any uh, understanding of, of that, the tenor in that household and whether she was working to protect herself against it? We don't. Um, we have, uh, one, uh, recollection of Susanna Wheatley chastising another, an enslaved man of the household for being too friendly with her, for sitting next to her on the car, on a carriage ride back. She sent her carriage out to fetch her when she was, uh, doing whatever, doing a, probably doing a poetry performance at somebody else's house and the weather got bad. And so she sends a carriage out and the driver, and this is the only reference we have to this enslaved man in, in any records. We, you know, we wouldn't otherwise know that he existed. Um, uh, she saw them driving back and, and they're sitting up uh, behind the horse, I guess, on the carriage uh, and uh, together. And she says, would you look at that saucy varlet supposedly um, sitting next to my Phyllis? So this has often been used as a sign that she has extra special treatment that she's not so that she's not really being treated like a slave. Right. So it may be that, um, that she is, um, for, for an enslaved person, more feminized and treated more like a child, uh, and, uh, kept apart. That may be true, but I don't see other evidence of that. Uh, I, 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 and I think, I think we have to, rather than assuming that, well, she became a, a great poet because she was treated differently, I think we have to assume that she actually was part of a community because there's, because I, I have clear evidence that that community of Africans, that cohort, as I, as I call it, actually existed and influenced her. Uh, so I think, I think it is a matter of her um, uh, being young and playing innocent and um also i think uh i think in some of the early poems especially it's pretty clear that like that uh she's performing chastity and um purity uh in such a way that um would uh fend off threats uh and um uh but um as i argue uh there's there's evidence in Odell's narrative that she wrote at night and enslaved people worked at night. They took care of the household at night. This is a time when fires have to be put out, bedpans have to be emptied, meals have to be made. That happens in the night. The night is the, is ser the servant's time. There's a wonderful book about this by A. Roger Eckert uh, uh, called, uh, what's it called, A Day's Close. Um, I'll put it in the show notes yeah, with the about, right title. It's about night in early modern times. And um, uh, I think that uh, we have to understand that, um, yes, she may have done her writing at night. We don't even know that she slept. 
Well, actually, she has a few poems about sleeping that are really interesting. So we know she slept. We know that she thought of sleep and wakefulness and sleep as a as an important trope. But like when we think about like the fact that like rather than think, oh, they they didn't let they didn't let, rather than assume that they didn't let her work and that's how she had time to write. It was just as possible that she didn't need much sleep and she worked damn hard, but she carved out time in the nighttime to do her her praying and thinking and writing. So uh, I think that she, and you know, so like basically servants knew every, servants knew who was in what bed and what was going on and what was going on on the streets and that there's prostitution in Boston and that there's fooling around and all kinds of things. So we, we shouldn't assume that just because she played innocent or um, was protected that she uh, was not dealing with um, the dealing with these issues. Right. And I suppose though she was touching a lot of third rails in her poetry, perhaps, you know, writing about the threat of sexual exploitation as an enslaved person was the the step too far that she wouldn't put in the poetry. Like I don't think we know, but certainly the the poems that are there don't have that as a as a theme. Um, I've said over and over again, this is a really sweeping book. I I, I want to stick in uh, a footnote, ironically, that that there are no footnotes. This is a very interesting book in that it is uh, for scholars in the back. There are all of the notes tied to all of the statements. But as a reader, you can read the book seamlessly. And I just wanted to say, I don't know if that was your choice or the publisher's choice, but it, it really worked for me in that I absolutely want to go look at some of the sources and I'm curious about them. But it was interesting to have it written in the way that it's kind of in, un, an uninterrupted um, story. Um, so I've said this is sweeping. I've said this is detailed. And we're coming to the end of the podcast. Is there something that we haven't talked about in the book that was really important to you in the writing that you know we, we should conclude with? Well, um, I guess I, I would... Uh... I would emphasize again, since uh, I thought I th- we I thought we would get there, and when I talk about the book, I usually get there one way or another. That I see Wheatley as um, Wheatley is also a case study in how the problem of slavery and all the other issues of the American Revolution became imbricated and connected. And there are a lot of ways to follow and tell that story, um, and it doesn't have to begin in one place and end in any other particular place. But that I think we often, uh, the way that that problem, that question of the relationship of the American Revolution to the problem of slavery has become so politicized in recent years, uh, it's become a kind of either or. Either the American Revolution was about slavery or it was innocent of it. And uh, I've, I've been spending my career and I uh, and my uh, my mentor, David Brian Davis, spent uh, a good deal of his career suggesting the story is a lot more complicated than that. And it goes in multiple directions. And I'm uh, so I want to emphasize that this is another this is uh, another attempt to get that story right and to suggest that uh, maybe we won't really understand the American Revolution unless we understand the politics of slavery. And we won't really understand our contemporary debates and the fate of the, the, the fate of slavery after the American Revolution unless we understand that it was part of the American Revolution the debate, the controversy, the issue, the way it inflected um, events as well as attitudes about not just about black people, but about what slavery was and what liberty was. And that's what Wheatley's dealing with. And that's part of the reason why she became 
so famous and so important was not just because she did these amazing things, but because she sees this opportunity because these questions were already being asked by others. No, that's terrific. What what are you working on now, David? Well, I haven't I haven't decided. Um, I'm having a, an extended. Uh, how do I top this moment? But uh, in uh, uh, so I take on in moments like this, I take on side projects. I'm doing an edition of John Quincy Adams' um, speeches and other writings for Library of America to follow up on this uh, edition of his of his diary that I did a few years ago. And out of that may come a book that involves John Quincy Adams, or may not. I might write another kind of another kind of politics of slavery book, or another kind of revolution book. I haven't quite decided. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to say before we conclude? Oh uh, no, thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Okay, well, thank you very much for writing the book. Uh, I, I honestly, I, I read a lot. And, um, and so much of what I read impresses me and I am overwhelmed by what our colleagues do in every discipline, spending years, decades of their life doing careful research. Also, I can hold it in my hand and read it. Uh, and some of it is harder for me than others. Some of it's closer to me than others. Th this was a, a really interesting book that, um, was more like an odyssey. It, it, it's it's well-titled and beautifully written and important, uh, especially for the reasons that you concluded with. I, I agree. We can't have a fight between the United States is golden and untarnished and the United States is only tarnished. Um, need something in between to think about a more perfect union and educating people in a way that will allow them to make sense of all these complicated ideas. So thank you so much uh, for joining me uh, to talk about this incredible book, The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, A Poet's Journey Through American Slavery and Independence. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.